The text from which Pastor John will preach this morning is 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 6 through 15. Would you please turn there and follow as I read and as Pastor John preaches? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, He scatters abroad, He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. Under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, this is a great text about motivation and enablement in giving. And I want to focus our attention on it and try to bring our minds and our affections into conformity to the spirituality and the God-centeredness that I see in this text. Let's begin by noticing Three pairs of contrasting giving. Five, verse five, verse six, and verse seven. I had to go back and pick up verse five, even though I didn't give it as a text, because I noticed that the pair is mentioned there as well. So as I read these three verses, you look for the wrong way to give and the right way to give, and it's three different expressions. Verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren to go on to you before me and arrange in advance for this gift that you've promised so that it may be ready not as an exaction, but as a willing gift. So literally, the two ways of giving are covetously and as a blessing. We'll come back to those words. Verse 6. The point is this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So here the two ways of giving are sparingly, bountifully. Verse 7, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here the two ways of giving are um, reluctantly, begrudgingly, under compulsion, and on the other side, 
cheerfully. So three ways not to give and three ways to give. Not by exaction or covetously, not sparingly and not reluctantly or under compulsion, but positively, willingly, bountifully, cheerfully. Now, let's think about these two. Let's let's first think about the wrong way to give. We get that clear in our heads. Maybe the Lord will free us from it. How ought we not then to give? What's wrong with these three bad ways of giving? I would say it like this. What's wrong is that all this wrong giving comes from a heart that wants to keep, that wants to hold on to. There is giving. For some reason or another, there there are enough external constraints and pressures that you do give your gift, but inside it's you want to hold on and keep. Take the word sparingly in verse 6 and think about it for a minute. He who gives sparingly will reap sparingly. How do you use that word spare? I thought of phrases like spare my life. What does that mean? It means don't take it from me. Let me keep it. Or I thought of the phrase spare no effort. What does that mean? It means give it all. Don't keep it. Don't keep it. Give all the effort you can. Or I thought of the biblical phrase from Romans 8.32. God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. In other words, he didn't keep him when the son stood up from his throne and attempted to leave heaven in order to die for sinners. The father didn't grab him and say, no, no. He let him go. He didn't spare him. Sparing, to give sparingly means to give from a heart that wants to keep, hold on to, maximize the possession that you've got. Inside, the real feeling, in spite of how much is floating out, is to keep, not to let go. So don't give that way, Paul says. That's the wrong way to give. You see, it's not between giving or not giving here. We're talking about ways, heart ways of giving. Let's talk about the positive side. Verse 6 uses the word bountifully. In the Greek, it literally means to sow on the basis of blessing. It's the same word used in verse 5, translated willingly. I think it means that the kind of giving Paul wants to come about is giving that has received blessing from God and then on the basis of that blessing, like a springboard, gives. Verse 7 calls it cheerful giving. So, bountiful giving or giving bountifully means giving from a heart that wants to give. The blessing has come. It's created kind of a pressure inside. And the most natural thing when there's pressure is to flow out. A little needle of need pokes through, then a little squirt of love comes out. I thought of the analogy of a magnet, and I had to check it with Carson here because I don't remember my physics too well. We, we are all people born with a magnet 
little, little pole here, a little magnet. And the pole is out here that relates to all the money and all the satisfactions of the world by drawing them in like this. That's the way we're born. And conversion is the taking of this magnet and flopping it over. So the other pole is facing out. And then the impulse is to, to push things out for other people rather than to draw everything in for our private use. Now, which of those hearts did you have this week as you pondered your giving? Those of you who are participating in Span the 90s or wherever you give your resources. Which heart did you have? I'm not asking how much did you give or how much do you plan to give. That's really not the issue in God's mind. The issue is what kind of heart did you have as you meditated on the issue of giving? Was it a sparing heart that, whose fundamental drive was keep, keep, not too much, don't let it go? Or was the fundamental drive inside, oh, I wish I could give more. How much can I give to whatever you're thinking about giving to. Which leads me to ask this question. What is underneath these two kinds of hearts? What makes the difference between a sparing heart and a bountiful heart? Now, on the basis of what we're going to see coming in this text, I would answer that like this. The difference between a person who is a sparing giver and a person who's a bountiful giver is the way they see God. Or perhaps more penetratingly, the way they feel God. The sparing giver feels God as a taker. And the bountiful giver feels God as a giver. person who is a sparing giver gives. We've said that. But it's a draining demand. Ever demanding this God. He looks up to heaven and what he sees is a pointing finger that says, give, give, give me, give me, give me. Meet my demand. So they give. What a difference though between that draining, depleting, exhausting, sparing gift and the gift of the person who, when he looks up to God, sees the face of helper, provider, giver, father, pouring, fountain. I like that analogy. Not draining his life away, but supplying his life. Isn't that what the the literal translation of verse 6 suggests? Give or sow on the basis of a blessing. Know God fundamentally as a blesser and a giver, not a taker in this whole issue of giving. And even when this person who is a bountiful giver looks up and hears a demand, he hears that demand as a gift. Do you hear the Ten Commandments as gift? Do you hear the commands of Scripture as all gift and grace? Little Barnabas, three years old, playing on the sidewalk on 18th Street. And uh, 
His mother in the kitchen in the summertime and the window open sees him toddling toward the street. Barnabas, stop! Now, it doesn't make one whit what Barnabas thinks about that tone of voice. It is all love. It is all love. Now, he will grow up as all of you bountiful givers have grown up to know that all the commands of Scripture are exactly of that kind. There is only one kind of command in the Bible, and it is all love. If you cannot read the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, as gifts of love, you haven't read them aright. They are intended to save people who are ruining their lives by sin. What makes the difference then between the sparing giver and the bountiful giver? It's their relation to God. Do they relate to God as a giver or do they relate to God as a taker, a demander, an incessant demander? One feels, if God is draining me, what joy can I have if I don't drain the world? If life is being sucked up out of me by the demands of God, then I've got to suck in whatever pleasures I can from the world. Oh, moral pleasures, moral, moral, moral. They don't do anything very terrible because he is a demander and therefore keeps them in tow. But the fundamental approach to life under this demanding God is I have no resources within. He demands them all. And depletes me day in and day out. And therefore, my fundamental feeling toward the world is I must get, keep, have, use. But with the bountiful giver who looks up and doesn't relate to God as demander but as giver, it flows all in the other direction. A supplier, a replenisher, a father, a fountain, and the resources are there. When you look out upon the world as a sparing giver, and having looked up and seen God saying, give me, give me, give me, I take. And the, and the world's needs stretch out before you. You can't say to the world, take me, take me, I'm yours. I'm your servant. Spend me for your good. You can't. You can't be taken in two directions. You have to know God as a giver. He will be known as a giver. That is the point of this text. I am the giver in the affair of giving. I am not a taker, God says, in this affair of giving. Which is why, even though we sing it, we'll sing it before this service is done even though there are biblical warrants for saying it and singing it. I almost never say it. Namely, that at an offering time, we are giving our gifts to God. I almost never say that. Because I just feel so much inside the need to correct the apprehension that God is a taker in this affair of giving. He isn't. He is a giver in this affair, which I think you'll see much more clearly 
as we move on through the text. The big issue this morning is do we feel God as giver or taker in relationship to us? And I want to affirm He will be known. He loves to be known. He loves to be trusted, felt as giver, not taker. In two senses. A giver from behind, enabling our giving, and a giver from in front, rewarding our giving. And I'll try to show you these two senses in which God wills to be known as a giver in this text. Let's go to verse 8 and begin to see God on the backside of our giving, enabling it. Verse 8 goes like this. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, or literally, make every grace to bound to you, so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. So what's he saying? He is saying God wants to be known as the giver in your giving. The provider, the enabler. He is not the taker in verse 8. People are the taker. God is the giver and he wants to be known and felt as overwhelmingly bountiful in his giving so that we're never left without the resources to give to people, not to him. Verse 9 picks up the image of sowing and reaping in verse 6. Remember back in verse 6 it said, if you sow sparingly, then you're going to reap sparingly. And if you sow bountifully, you will reap a harvest of bounty. Now, he gives an illustration in verse 9, taken from Psalm 112, verse 9. And he illustrates this person, this bountiful giver. This is the bountiful giver of verse 6. As it is written, he scatters abroad, this giver does. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, if you're like me, I think I read that text for years and years thinking it was God being spoken of in verse 9. And it isn't. And the first clue of that was to go back and read the psalm. And the psalm, it isn't God. It's the righteous man giving to the poor that he quotes. And then the second reason is the context makes it very clear that he's illustrating the sower of verse 6 in his lavish generosity as he scatters to the poor. And then he calls that lavish generosity righteousness and says it's going to last that man forever, right on into eternity. Now, you can see this buttressed as we move into verse 10. Verse 10 is an exposition of verse 9, bringing it into relation to God. God is the one who gives the seed or sowing, and God is the one who gives the harvest of righteousness. Now, let's look at that. Verse 10 says, he who supplies the seed to the sower. Now, the sower is the one in verse 9 who was scattering his seed to the poor. He who supplies the seed to this sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your the RSV says resources, it's literally your seed or your sowing. So what's the point of that first half of the verse? The point of that first half of the verse is God is the giver on the backside of giving. That is, the only reason we have any seed in our bag as we walk down the furrows is because God poured it in the bag. 
That's the first half of the verse, right? He, he says, go out there among the poor and walk down the furrows and just, just throw it like this. Just throw your life like this. Give your life to people. Whatever God has given you, your two talents, five talents, ten talents, give them away. Now, where's all that come from? Well, verse 10 says, God gave you that seed to scatter in verse 9. Now, the rest of verse 10 goes like this. This is the front side of giving. Who's the giver on the front side of our giving? He will increase or cause to grow the harvest of your righteousness. Now, what does that mean? A harvest of your righteousness. Well, righteousness was used in verse 9. Do you see it? Your righteousness endures forever. And that's referring to your uh, generosity. Generosity is described as righteousness in verse 9. It'll last forever. And here it talks about a harvest of generosity, righteousness. Well, what would that be? Well, what happens when the seeds of generosity fall into the ground of people's lives? Things change. Things happen. That's the harvest that's going to get multiplied. What happens as a result of your righteousness is the harvest of righteousness. And who's the giver on the front side? This harvest that you are going to eat and enjoy and be blessed by that came from your sowing of seed in the lives of other people. The text says, God makes it grow. So do you see what this text is stressing? Behind us, enabling us to give, in front, of us, in front of us, rewarding our giving, God's the giver. He wants to be known as the giver in this affair this morning. He doesn't want anybody to think of him as a taker in this affair. He is the giver behind and in front, enabling and rewarding. Now, the great truth then, just to state it one more time before we look at the harvest, is that God will be trusted and loved and known and felt as a giver. Not a depleter of life. Not a taker. Not an incessant, burdensome demander. Otherwise, all our giving is going to be burdensome, Oppressive, legalistic, sparing. Now, Paul's not done revealing this great God, the giver. He wants to talk about the harvest. And so we're going to close by looking at four aspects of the harvest that you are going to reap bountifully when you sow bountifully. Aspect number one is in the first half of verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity, which I take to mean that the first result or reward of having sown generously is the capacity to sow more generously. Now, that might not excite you unless you believe the truth it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you believe the truth, if you feel the truth, that it is more blessed to give than to, re to receive, this, this snowballing effect of the increasing ability to be generous is the most thrilling thing you can imagine. 
You go to bed at night. How do you pray? Don't you pray, oh God, when I get up tomorrow, may I have the wherewithal, the personal, emotional, spiritual resources to be a giver. Because all of you know giving is where life is. And so the first reward that comes from one who does the little that he can in sowing will be a capacity to do more. And that is thrilling. You want to know how to to be a, a generous giver? Give what you can give. The second aspect of reward or harvest that comes from your bountiful sowing is in the second half of verse 11. Great generosity, which... Through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, the second thing that you receive as a reward is the thrill of knowing people are thanking God because of what you've done. God is receiving thanks. You see, there is where you talk about the taker. Sure, there is something to give to God. Thanks. Because He's giver. He's always giver. It almost seems wrong to talk of Him as taker in terms of thanks, doesn't it? The same thing is stressed in verse 13. Only glory is used here. And that's one of our favorite ideas at Bethlehem. The glory of God and It's a complex sentence in Greek, and that's why some of your versions go different ways. But the the thing they agree on is the main point. And I want to read it from the RSV and stress that main point. It goes like this. Under the test of this service, you or they will glorify God. There it is. By your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ. That is by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. Stated simply, what that means is God gets the glory when his people give generously. Now, why? Doesn't the giver get the glory? Yeah, the giver gets the glory. Get it? The whole point of this text is every time you give, God is the giver. In the back, enabling your giving. In the front, rewarding your giving. Inside, He is all the giving. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him be, the text says, glory or thanks. So the the second reward that the saint gets from a lavish sowing of seed is sprouts of glory to God growing up in people's lives. Said to the second service, the saints love it when you say to them, I thank God for what you did. Because the saints are so eager to be used by God to bring about glory to God that that would bring more pleasure to them than if you said, I thank you for what you did. And everybody filed by the door dutifully afterwards and said, I thank God for your sermon. (laughs) But I mean it. And you can say nothing as you walk by today, now that I've made you all uncomfortable. But I mean it. You all feel this way. In the New Testament, Paul never thanks anybody for anything except God. Isn't that remarkable? 
Only God is thanked in the New Testament. And that does not mean it's wrong to say thank you to somebody when they've done you something. But the, the tacit assumption among believers when they talk like that is, there's grace bestowed in my life that has enabled me to do something that has caused you to see God and benefit from Him. That's the second aspect of the harvest. The third aspect of the harvest is in verse 12. The rendering of this service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgiving to God. Now, of course, the last part of the verse just reaffirms what we've been saying. When you give generously, God gets thanks. The first half of the verse states the new thing. It supplies the wants, that is, the things that are lacking in the saints. Now, that's a reward because you know as you look at your life, that the things that bring you joy are being able to recognize that your life has made a difference in meeting needs in other people's lives. If you feel like your life is spent, nobody gets helped. Nobody gets changed. Nobody gets encouraged. Because I've lived, you feel pointless. But this text says you don't have to live that way because God, by your relating to Him as a giver, and having your resources supplied so that you can then give, people's needs are met. You can see that happening. And that's a great harvest joy. And the question concerning Span the 90s that you need to ask is, will building a sanctuary and a new youth and CE building down the street, will that expense meet more people's needs in this city and around the world than if we don't do it? That is the crucial question. To the degree that you say, yes, it will, that's the vision we have, then you'll feel enthusiastic, your prayers will go in that direction, and that's the harvest you will anticipate and work for. If you don't see it, you'll pull back, and rightly so. You must act according to your conscience because the only reason we live is to meet needs so that thanks and glory go to God. Now, there's one last aspect to the harvest. It's real precious, real special. I want you to feel the sweetness of it. It's in verse 14. It's the affection and love of God's people coming back to us as a result of our generosity. It says that the people who benefit from your sowing long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. It's as though Paul is saying, the reward of harvest is that people will long for you. You want people to long for you? I think everybody in this room wants to be loved and needed and desired, longed for, not rejected, longed for. I do. I want to be loved and needed and longed for. Well, why should I want that? Will I get the glory? Isn't that self-centered? Look at this sentence. Isn't this verse 14 amazing? Just everywhere you go in the Bible, you see this. Because... Why do I want to be loved? Why do I want to be longed for? Why do I want to be needed? Because of the surpassing grace of 
God in me. If you love me for another reason, God won't get the glory. If you need me for another reason, God won't get the glory. If you desire me for another reason than the grace of God in me, God won't get the glory. But I want God to get the glory and I want to be loved. And I'm so glad God set it up that I don't have to choose. Aren't you? To me, the best news in all the world. The reason I wrote Desiring God. The bottom line in all my preaching. The heartbeat of my ministry. The glue that holds my marriage together. The philosophy of my parenthood is this great news. God will be the giver in my life without exception every second of the day that He might get the glory. I can't think of anything more glorious in all the world than the news and the revelation that God has set up a universe like that. That God wills to be the giver always in my life and yours so that when I am loved and needed, it will be because of the grace of God in my life and it will all go to His glory. Well, my prayer as we move to the moment of commitment here is that that's the impulse that will be behind giving to span the nights. And before we have a moment of silence and then sing a hymn in preparation, I'd like to pray with you. Oh, Father in heaven, would you please grant yourself to be felt as a giver? Oh, let the double-edged sword of your precious word slice away the deadening calluses of the taste buds of our soul that we might taste the goodness of God and drink the milk of his kindness. Oh, Father, open the eyes of our hearts to behold that you are not a taker in this affair of giving. You are a giver. And you will get the glory. Dreaming, Lord, beyond our radical dreaming someday, we look to you for a grand display of lavish generosity upon us when there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain or guilt anymore. And would you please grant us the anticipation of that glorious day in a radical dream and a radical generosity in these days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.